Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. We will not be intimidated, and we will also not be silenced. Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, and Delta may be scared of Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, and the left, but I am not, and we are not as Georgia Governor Brian Kemp hits back after Major League Baseball decides to move this summer's All-Star game out of Atlanta amid backlash over the state's new voting law. The question is, how exactly does Georgia's election law compare to other states? Plus, week two of the Derek Chauvin murder trial gets underway in Minneapolis today. Another member of the force, this time the chief of police, is expected to testify against his former colleague. Question is, what will he say on the stand? Also this morning, a state of emergency declared in Florida as crews try to fix a toxic wastewater leak near Tampa. Question is, could we see a flood catastrophe? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that had more than enough jelly beans over the weekend. I am Casey Hunt on this Monday, April 5th. We'll start with the news. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is criticizing Major League Baseball and several Atlanta-based companies as backlash over the state's new voting law continues. On Friday, the MLB announced that it would be moving the upcoming All-Star game from Atlanta to a ballpark in another state. That news had the governor hitting back over the weekend, even comparing voting laws in Georgia to those in New York, where Major League Baseball is headquartered. Major League Baseball caved to fear and lies from liberal activists. They ignored the facts of our new election integrity law, and they ignored the consequences of their decision on our local community. Georgians and all Americans should know what this decision means. It means cancel culture and partisan activists are coming for your business. They're coming for your game or event in your hometown. And they're coming to cancel everything from sports to how you make a living. In New York, they have 10 days of early voting. In Georgia, we have a minimum of 17 with two additional Sundays that are optional for all counties in our state. In New York, you have to have an excuse to vote by absentee. In Georgia, you can vote absentee for any reason, and you can do it securely. It's easier to vote in Georgia than it is in New York. Even more ridiculous is that MLB didn't cite a single reason that they disagreed with the bill in their statement. Everyone standing here today, and those at home know why, because the facts and the truth don't support their narrative. Georgia's new election law has been criticized by voting rights advocates who argue that it unfairly targets disenfranchised voters. We're going to have much more on this story coming up on Morning Joe when Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan joins the conversation. Now this, members of President Biden's administration rallied to support his more than $2 trillion infrastructure deal over the weekend. 
We're still coasting off of infrastructure choices that were made in the 1950s. Now's our chance to make infrastructure choices for the future. I think it's important that we upgrade our definition of infrastructure, one that meets the needs of a 21st century economy. And that means we need to be funding and incentivizing those structures that allow us to maximize our economic activity. This is the American Jobs Act, so it's also focused on creating good-paying, sustainable jobs in a whole array of sectors that will will help us to win the future. It's a, the biggest investment in America since FDR, since the, the New Deal. It well, I would say he, the, it, this is a good faith effort. We want to hear where other people are. We want to get people's reactions to uh, this uh, package, both in the specifics and uh, in the overall. We've got a lot of infrastructure weeks ahead of us, guys, so hang in there. <laughs> Meanwhile, the U.S. is now administering more than 3 million new COVID vaccine shots daily. The CDC reported a record 4.1 million new doses were given on Saturday. The agency j says just over 104 million Americans, or 31 percent of the population, have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Nearly 60 million people, or 18 percent of the population, are fully vaccinated. Some nice news on this Monday. And there's this as well. The CDC says it's now safe for fully vaccinated people to travel. Americans traveling within the U.S. can now do so without needing a COVID test or quarantining. If you're leaving the country, you also don't need a test unless the place you're visiting requires one. And when you're coming back from an international trip, you should get a negative test before flying and get another test on arrival. The guidance hasn't changed for Americans who aren't fully vaccinated, though, as they're urged to avoid traveling completely. These changes come after TSA reported the most passenger screenings since the start of the pandemic on Friday. All right. Joining us now, author of The Washington Post's early morning newsletter, Power Up, Jackie, Jacqueline Alemany. Jackie, uh, good morning. Always great to see you. Thanks for being up uh, early with us. Uh, let's start with uh, what we kicked off the show with, with which is MLB, uh, J Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and this voting law. Clearly, uh, quote unquote, cancel culture is going to be a focus for Republicans, uh, both in states and also, of course, running for federal office to try to get elected to the House and Senate. Is it going to work for them? That's the million dollar question. And it's something that I think lawmakers are at home test driving with their constituents right now as they are on a three week recess. Uh, and they're trying to land a lot of attacks on Biden's spending spree. And as you just noted with uh, Governor Brian Kemp's press conference, cancel culture, that has been uh, perhaps the most reoccurring theme that we've heard from Republicans um, since the beginning of this year, uh, something we saw a, a lot fomenting at CPAC. Um, and now I think, you know, uh, a perhaps one of the only viable uh, responses to some of the voting restrictions that we're seeing play out in, you know, dozens of states around the country right now. Um, but look, this is a law that Governor Brian Kemp actually signed behind closed doors with no cameras there to to show what he was doing. Um, it is already shown that it is deeply unpopular. Uh, dozens of companies are having a hard time of remaining neutral when it comes to comment, refraining from commenting on these laws that we're seeing and these restrictions, uh, shrinking early absentee voting, requiring voter IDs. Uh, and, and, and so 
I, I think that Republicans are really going to struggle to find anything else, I think, to explain uh, this push to restrict voting other than cancel culture. Uh, so, Jackie, I, I guess as we talk about that as a potential issue in the midterms, I'm thinking about the other news we have this morning, that people are getting vaccinated at a pretty solid clip here. Uh, the country is on track to getting back to some version of normal if we continue at that rate. From a political perspective, is anyone going to care about any of these other challenges if they see that President Biden has successfully uh, set their lives back to normal? Yeah, I you know, that again is a, is a really great question. There are so many unknown factors here right now, uh, especially as you had the CDC, people like Rochelle Walensky uh, and Dr. Fauci warning last week that there was potential for Americans to not be able to turn the corner if people didn't continue to uh, abide by some of these mitigation efforts, including continuing to wear a mask despite getting vaccinated. We're still also a ways away from herd immunity, uh, which has been pushed back later into this year. Um, but I think what we are going to see is with Biden continuing to successfully get things back to normal uh, and push through this legislation that early polling has said is popular, including the American Rescue plan, which is already behind us, and now looking ahead to the infrastructure plan, I think it, you're going to see a lack of substantive attacks from Republicans. Uh, you're going to see some contortions in describing the spending. Republicans, as you and I talked about last week, trying to push this onto, uh, or try to, trying to falsely frame it as falling on American workers, even though none, neither of the bills specify um, you know, taxes for, for those making less than 400,000. Um, but I think that again, with things getting back to normal for the first time in a year, it is going to be challenging to get American voters to tune into anything, but getting their lives back to normal here. All right. The Washington Post, Jackie Alamany, thank you as always for kicking us off today. We really appreciate it. And the first week of testimony in the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd ended Friday with testimony from the longest standing officer in the department. That officer, Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, faulted Derek Chauvin's use of force against Floyd. Pulling him down to the ground face down and putting your knee on the neck for that amount of, uh, that amount of time is just... Um, uncalled for. Um, I saw no reason why the officers felt they were in danger, if that's what they felt. Um, and that's what they would have to feel to be able to use that kind of force. So in your opinion, should that restraint have stopped once he was handcuffed and prone on the ground? Absolutely. So Zimmerman, the head of the homicide unit, added that the suspects who are handcuffed should be taken off their chest as soon as possible. But on cross-examination, he acknowledged that officers are allowed to improvise and use whatever means are available in order to protect themselves. Zimmerman was among the officers who signed on to an open letter shortly after Floyd's death, pledging to regain the trust of the community and condemning Chauvin's actions. NBC News has learned that prosecutors plan to call Minneapolis police, chief of police to testify against Chauvin today. He'll be the first of several expert witnesses this week discussing the use of force and department procedures. 
Okay, still ahead here. Two final teams are set for a historic championship game as March Madness comes to a close tonight. We're going to have a preview of that. Plus, the United States and Tehran have agreed to indirect talks about returning to the Iran nuclear deal. Senator and Foreign Relations Committee member Chris Coons will be my guest to weigh in on that. We'll be right back with much more. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. CIDP disrupts. CIDP derails. Let's be honest. CIDP sucks. But living with CIDP doesn't have to. When you sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com, you'll find inspiration and real patient stories. Helpful tips, reliable information, and more. CIDP can be tough. But finding hope just got a little easier. Sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com. Be heard. Be hopeful. Be you. Looking for McDonald, lobs it into McDonald. Five seconds left. McDonald, two seconds. McDonald traps, heaves, can't hit. That is it. Stanford survives again. Welcome back. The wait is over for Coach Tara Vanderveer and the Stanford Cardinals capturing the NCAA women's basketball title last night for the first time since 1992. Top-seeded Stanford's 54-53 victory came down to the final seconds with Arizona unable to sink the game-winning shot at the buzzer. After being forced to spend 10 weeks on the road earlier this season because of coronavirus restrictions in Santa Clara, California, Stanford battled for three weeks in the NCAA tournament bubble in San Antonio, where they leave national champions. The 29-year title gap, which includes 10 trips to the Final Four, is the longest for any Division I coach in any sport. Wow. Meanwhile, the men's title is going to be decided between a pair of top seeds. Following a dominant win in an all-Texas Final Four matchup against second-seeded Houston on Saturday, Baylor will meet Gonzaga in the national championship. The number one overall-seeded Bulldogs will look to complete their perfect season. Can you believe that? With a win over Baylor tonight after surviving the Final Four with a buzzer beater in overtime against 11th-seeded UCLA. I guess we're not showing it, but if you haven't seen it, go watch that shot. It's amazing. And in Major League Baseball, the Nationals will finally open their season tomorrow afternoon at home against the Braves. The league announced last night that the team's latest round of coronavirus tests came back negative after Washington's opening series against the Mets was postponed on Friday because four players tested positive for COVID-19. As of yesterday, in addition to the four players in isolation who tested positive, there are seven players and two staff members in quarantine because of contact tracing. The Nats are expected to hold a workout with eligible players this afternoon. That was supposed to be my son's first baseball game over the weekend. Guys, we're pretty disappointed in y'all. Anyway, all right, let's go to Anaheim, California, and a historic night for the Angels. Two-way star Shohei Otani hitting and pitching in the same game for the first time in his major league career. Otani went one for three at the plate, including a solo home run on the first pitch he saw in the first inning. He is the first pitcher to bat second in a lineup since 1903. Wow. 
On the mound, Otani struck out seven batters with nine pitches clocked at 100 miles per hour. His 100.6 mile per hour fastball is the fastest thrown so far this season. But his outing was cut short, exiting the game in the fifth inning after taking a cleat to the ankle while covering the plate on a play at home. Ouch. The Angels later said he wasn't removed because of injury and that he was just sore. Fingers crossed. Otani said his his uh, leg felt fine after the game, adding that the collision wasn't as bad as it looked, and he will be reevaluated today. After his exit, last night's game came down to the final frame, tied in the bottom of the ninth with two runners on base for the Angels. One of the great stories on this Angel roster this year. Oh, Wall sends it well out to left center field. Wow, the Angels walk off on a three-run homer, defeating the White Sox 7-4. to four. And now, there's this. At the conclusion of the first weekend of the new baseball season, my Baltimore Orioles are sitting atop the American League East. The O's are one of three major league teams without a loss after wrapping up a three-game series sweep of the Boston Red Sox yesterday, an 11-3 romp at Fenway Park. Yes. Let's go O's. All right, time now for the weather. Let's go to meteorologist Bill Karens for a check on the forecast. Bill, good morning. Hey, Casey, good morning. I hope you had a great weekend. Sorry about that baseball game. Hopefully you'll get that in soon. Uh, as far as the weather this week, it's looking pretty quiet. Severe storms here and there will be the main story. We're starting off with a storm system in the northern Rockies. And as we go throughout this week, we're going to have little tiny areas of severe threats. Today's severe threat is going to be in areas of Minnesota. We'll watch Minneapolis later on today. Damaging wind, maybe a little bit of hail. Kind of a small location for, uh, you know, not going to see anything widespread. Tomorrow, severe weather shifts to the south from Wichita to Kansas City. And then by the time we get to Wednesday, that's a bigger severe outbreak. It looks like Little Rock areas to Mississippi. But Casey, here's the bottom line. It is a beautiful Monday out there across the country. Enjoy it. Look at these warm temperatures. Sounds great to me. Bill Karens, thank you uh, so much for uh, being here this morning. We will see you tomorrow, my friend. And still ahead here, hundreds of families in Florida have been told to evacuate after new concerns about a wastewater reservoir potentially collapsing. We're going to have the very latest from Tampa. But before we go to break, we want to know, as always, why are you awake? Email us your reasons to being up and watching to way too early at msnbc.com or drop me a tweet at Casey. Use the hashtag way too early and we'll read some of our favorite answers coming up later on in the show. Shining through CIDP to me means being able to do what you want to do and not what the disease is telling you you can't do. Don't give in to the disease. It's not easy, but I'm going to do it. And like I've told people, I may have CIDP, but CIDP don't have me. Sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com to get real CIDP stories and resources. Welcome back. A state of emergency has been declared in Florida after a leak was found at a toxic wastewater reservoir near Tampa. Hundreds of residents have been told to evacuate. Governor Ron DeSantis says crews are working to prevent a, quote, catastrophic flood situation. NBC News correspondent Sam Brock has the details. Breach in this Florida wastewater reservoir is getting bigger as Manatee County remains under a local state of emergency. What we're looking at now is 
trying to prevent and respond to, if need be, a real catastrophic flood situation. A leaky man-made pond started with 480 million gallons of salt water mixed with nitrogen and ammonia, now under 300 million, but threatening to burst. The Florida National Guard airdropping more pumps in, preparing to double the water flowing out as concern from evacuees escalates. Candace Kays and her friends and family forced to flee after much deliberation. As much as I don't want to leave my home just because of worries of anything happening, I'm terrified of my seven-year-old having to go through something catastrophic. People from more than 300 homes instructed to leave the area. A community crushed by the circumstances. Omar Iraq's business is right on the edge of the evacuation zone. Our health can't come back if we get sick from something that could have been prevented. The county administrator acknowledging the infrastructure problems could have been dealt with decades ago. But state environmental officials say there's no threat of radioactive water. The southern pond, as we mentioned, is mainly seawater. For those people who are worried, they hear radioactive elements in water, which is what's being reported right now. You're saying that that's not a concern? Correct. As for hundreds of millions of gallons being flushed into the Gulf, scientists say that will impact the ecosystem. So algae blooms, what they do is they block off oxygen. So fish and other things that are dependent on oxygen in their water suddenly start to suffocate. Yikes. Our thanks to NBC's Sam Brock for that report. All right, coming up here, what we're learning about Friday's attack at the U.S. Capitol that left an officer dead and the new warning from the head of the Capitol Police. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. way too early. It is 5.30 here on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Casey Hunt. A U.S. Capitol Police officer was killed and another injured after a man drove a car into the North Security Barricade at the Capitol Complex on Friday. Acting Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman identified the fallen officer as William Billy Evans. He was an 18-year veteran of the force and a member of the Capitol Division's First Responders Unit. The driver, 25-year-old Noah Green from Indiana, was shot and killed after exiting the vehicle, failing to respond to officers' directives and lunging at them with a knife, according to Pittman. According to NBC News, in postings on social media, Green let his friends and family know that the past few years have been tough and the past few months, quote, tougher. Green's Facebook page featured several recent postings that referenced the teachings of the Nation of Islam and its leader, Louis Farrakhan, though acting police chief Robert Conti said the attack, quote, did not appear to be terrorism related. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said Friday that the FBI's Washington field office would be, quote, assisting the Metropolitan Police Department with their investigation of this tragic attack. Officer Kenny Shaver, who was also injured in the incident, was released from the hospital on Saturday. With this second attack on the Capitol in three months, the head of the Capitol Police Union pushed Congress on Sunday to bolster security and warned of a possible thinning of the department's ranks. Joining us now to talk more about this, former FBI special agent and MSNBC contributor Clint Watts. Clint, uh, good morning. Thank you so much for getting up early uh, to be with us today. Um, I think I want to ask you, uh, as someone who has seen a lot of these situations unfold, I covered, I was at the Capitol uh, the day of the insurrection. I, I wasn't there uh, on Friday when this unfolded, but everyone was obviously extraordinarily on edge, worried that this was something more uh, that, 
you know, it, it was another blow. There, there's a lot of fear and a lot of conversations about exactly how to secure the building, considering that now it seems to be more of a target than it's ever been. What's your view of what needs to be done here? Casey, uh, I think what's remarkable is the more you hear about a target, the more it becomes a target. And that's sort of the contagion effect we've seen over the last month. I think this also is worrisome because we're starting to see the pandemic end and things are starting to unroll. And we've seen attacks in Atlanta, Boulder, Orange County the night before this one and Washington, D.C. And so that really brings to us the question about how you how do you secure the Capitol, which is the people's building and was meant to be open. And they had some innovative ideas in the general honorary report, which was uh, invis invisible fences, QRF, sort of collapsible perimeters, which are all good ideas. But if the, if the signature has become so intense around the Capitol, if people are focused on this place, it just increases the number of potential assailants. And I'm sure if you're a law enforcement officer like these Capitol Police, you're very worried right now that every day when you go to work, there could be an incident like this. Um, so I, I don't know that there's a good answer or a good example to point to, but it looks like that the Capitol, which was the only place in D.C. that was not kind of a fortress. Uh, if you went to FBI headquarters or the White House down the street, you know, you're, that was a fortress. It's very difficult to get into. I think the Capitol will be that way for some time, and maybe the approach is to incrementally sort of let the guard down over time, you know, in increments as the intensity around this target hopefully lifts as the year goes on. I mean, is part of the problem just the fact that people have learned how open the Capitol is? Perhaps they didn't fully understand that. I mean, I know that having gone there to work every day for 10 years, but uh, clearly now people know. I think so. I, I mean, I did not know it. Uh, as somebody who works in government a lot, I didn't go to the Capitol until recently, really, you know, the last six, seven years. And so it was kind of uh, shocking for me to go there and know that I could actually walk into it or you could check into it. And I thought that was great, right? You you have the American citizens which pay for their government and they have the representatives there and they can get there. And, and that's part of the spirit of the Capitol. At the same point, I think people realize it now also, not just as the Capitol, but as a place that you can draw attention to yourself. So this individual, uh, no ideological cause seems to come out. Doesn't seem like a terrorism case, but why did he choose the Capitol? He probably chose the Capitol because he had seen it so frequently in recent months on the news, and he knew that was somewhere he could go where it would draw attention you know, to what he was trying to do. And that's sort of the danger of the, the media feedback loop of these terrorist, uh, terrorist attacks and other attacks that occur, is it creates a contagion effect. So uh, there's no real way to stem that at this point, because this discussion about how to defend the Capitol and the investigation into January 6th is going to go on uh, for many months now. So it, it's just a problem that we'll have to wrestle with. All right, Clint Watts, thanks for being here this morning. And, and thank you also uh, for the essay that uh, you published uh, in the last uh, couple of days about your daughter, uh, Pepper, and um, her needing to go back to school and, and what that means. I would commend everyone to, to check it out on, on your Twitter feed. It was really it was really moving. So thanks very much, Clint. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate it. All right, the it. U.S., Tomorrow. of course. 
The U.S. and Iran may be one step closer to returning to the Iran nuclear deal. The State Department on Friday announced Tehran has agreed to indirect talks on returning to the agreement. Negotiations will begin next week in Vienna. The discussions focus on which American sanctions could be lifted in exchange for Iran cutting back its production of nuclear fuel and allowing inspections. But formal rejoining of the agreement may still be far off. All right, still ahead here, we're going to take a look at last night's SAG Award winners, plus why Bridgerton fans can expect a totally different male lead in the new season of the hit Netflix series. I think we're all pretty bummed out. Way Too Early is back in just a moment. All right, welcome back. Time now for something totally different. Awards season continues with the 27th annual Screen Actors Guild Awards airing last night in a one-hour pre-taped ceremony. Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 and Netflix drama The Crown were among the big winners, with Chicago 7 taking home the top award of Best Ensemble, setting a new record for Michael Keaton, who now has three Best Ensemble SAG Awards. That's the most anyone has won. And for the first time in SAG history, the four top performance awards all went to people of color. Viola Davis won Best Actress and Chadwick Boseman posthumously won Best Actor, both for their roles in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Daniel Kaluuya took home Best Supporting Actor for Judas and the Black Messiah, and Yoo Jung-yeon of Minari became the first Korean woman to win Best Supporting Actress. She was great in that movie. And season two of Netflix's hit Bridgerton will have fans bidding adieu to Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings. Netflix and the production company behind the hit show announced that star Regajan Page will not be returning with a tweet reading in part, quote, we'll miss Simon's presence on screen, but he'll always be part of the Bridgerton family. News of Page's departure will not be a surprise to fans of the book series on which the show is based, as each season will focus on another sibling's love life. But I think all of us who loved season one of Bridgerton are still pretty crushed by the stews. All right, and quarterback Tom Brady continues to break records, even off the football field. A Tom Brady rookie football card signed by the player just sold for $2.25 million. The card sold through an online sports auction house, Leland's, broke a football card record previously held by, you guessed it, another Tom Brady card that went for just over $1 million last month. I'm not sure I even really knew there were football cards. I was a, I was a baseball card kid, but anyway. All right, still ahead here. We're going to talk to Senator Chris Coons about the president's plans for American infrastructure and the economy. Don't go anywhere. Way too early. Coming right back. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America, unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. In fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. It's big, yes. It's bold, yes. And we can get it done. That was President Biden last week pushing legislation that could end up defining his presidency. And joining us now, members of the Foreign Relations and Appropriations Committees, Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Senator Coons, thank you so much for getting up early uh, on this Monday. I really appreciate it, especially after the holiday weekend. So thank you uh, for being here. And 
Unfortunately, um, we have to start off with um, what happened on Friday and yet another attack on the building where you work, have worked for a long time, uh, where we often see each other in the hallways and all of these questions about whether the Capitol has really become a target in a way that it, it hasn't been in the past. What do you think needs to be done to secure the building, considering that reality? Uh, does it change how you view whether we need uh, a, a more secure fence or some other way of making sure that the Capitol Police Force uh, is able to stay safe? Good morning, Casey. It's great to be on with you, and I appreciate um, the opportunity to be up way too early uh, and to be talking about important <laughs> issues like the security of the Capitol. Um, look, I've uh, long been conscious uh, as I commute to the Capitol from Delaware regularly um, that I commute to and work in a place that is one of the top terrorist targets in the world. Um, for much of the time uh, I've been serving there the last decade, I've assumed that it was a place that international terrorists might target again someday. Just in the last year, it's become a place that I'm more and more concerned is a priority for domestic terrorists. And Friday, we saw another tragic loss of life uh, by the U.S. Capitol Police, um, and they deserve our attention, our investment, our priority in making sure that they are as well supported, as well coordinated with intelligence and resources as they possibly can be. I recognize that the Capitol is also an important symbol of democracy, not just here within the United States, but globally. And so to have it ring, ringed with a, a high impenetrable chain link fence covered with barbed wire um, was not a good look or feel for the last three months uh, since the January 6th insurrection. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in Senator Amy Klobuchar and the Rules Committee, which are working through different proposals for how we can strengthen the perimeter of the Capitol and strengthen the operations of the Capitol Police without losing the openness, the accessibility that's so important to the Capitol. Um, but for now, I think we have to put security first and plan in a thorough and diligent way what we're going to do going forward um, to still make it accessible to the American people while keeping the officers right. and the many people who serve their safe. Can you reassure Capitol Police officers that they're going to have the money and the resources to do their jobs? The union head was out with a statement over the weekend saying that they're 233 officers short of where they need to be, that young officers are coming up and saying they're looking for different opportunities, that many people are going to be retiring. Uh, what can you say to them uh, about what resources you, uh, as members of Congress, are going to commit to them? As a member of the Appropriations Committee, um, I would commit to robust funding for the security of the Capitol because, you know, frankly, we need experienced, seasoned law enforcement officers working at the Capitol. It's a difficult job uh, because it's so open, because there's so many people coming in and out. Um, and yet you have to remain vigilant. Um, so I think we need to invest in having um, the highest quality and best trained uh, police force possible for this yeah. important building in our nation. Let's talk policy uh, here for a second. Uh, the president's infrastructure plan. The White House is still uh, seeming to suggest that they think they might get some bipartisan support for some of this. I'll be honest with you, having seen uh, what's happened the last year, I am seriously skeptical that that's possible. Uh, do you think there's going to be a Republican uh, who votes for this plan when it comes to the floor of the Senate? Uh, Casey, I don't think there will be a Republican who votes for a $2 trillion plan 
that does a wide range of things and also raises taxes. I do think there are Republicans who would vote for pieces of this plan. So uh, if in the next few weeks uh, we diligently work um, to put forward a piece of this plan that addresses, for example, um, water, clean water, uh, wastewater, um, infrastructure like broadband, perhaps even some of the more expensive pieces like roads and bridges and tunnels and airports, we can get bipartisan support for that. But the the boldness, the sweep and scope of what President Biden has put forward as a framework um, that includes a lot of forward-looking investment, not just in electric vehicles and charging stations, but in climate resiliency, I don't think we're going to see Republican support for that. So my caucus has a simple choice to make. Do we invest time over the next couple of weeks in trying to negotiate a bipartisan piece first and then by reconciliation do the bolder and bigger things, or do we just put it all into one big package and move? Uh, My hunch is we will try seriously. The former, that's what I'm going to be doing, is continuing to talk to Republican colleagues about what they're willing to work with us on. But as we saw with the American Rescue Plan, which has already delivered an enormous amount of badly needed help to Americans in every state and territory, President Biden is insistent that we move. So we're not going to wait for months mm-hmm. and months. We're going to negotiate as best we can, um, I think, between now and at most Memorial Day. Uh, and then we're going to move ahead with what's possible. So, Senator, do you think you're going to get permission to use this uh, procedural maneuver uh, reconciliation additional times right now if you move with this infrastructure plan as you outline you use reconciliation that's your last chance before the midterm elections do you think that the parliamentarian is going to let you do it again uh, so you'll have another bill uh, in 2022 that you could pass with just the 50 democrats you have um to to be clear there's a there's an effort that senator schumer's making to get yet another opportunity i do think we'll have another chance next year Um, But I think whether or not we'll have several more chances, which is part of an obscure uh, parliamentary interpretation, I have no idea. Um, The parliamentarian is probably now um, the best newly known official in the Senate who folks watched (laughs) didn't know existed six weeks ago. Um, And it's up to Elizabeth. She's going to have to make a hard judgment call about, you know, given the history of the bill and its previous use, whether or not we can amend the Reconciliation Act we've already passed. Um, I certainly hope so, because I think we need to continue to make progress. President Biden was elected um, with the most votes of any elected president in modern history, in history, period, (laughs) Um, because of the crisis we're in. And we are making dramatic progress uh, towards ending this pandemic. Here in our state of Delaware, Governor Carney's doing a strong job. He's just announced that this week, every Delawarean over 16 will be eligible to get vaccinated. Um, 500,000 Delawareans have been vaccinated out of 900,000, and we're making strong progress across the country, vaccinating 4 million people in a day just in the last few days. All right. Senator Chris Coons, thank you so much for being up early with us. We really appreciate your perspective today. So thank you. And I'm sure I'll see you soon. And earlier on in the show, we asked all of you, why are you awake? Lou tweeted, I'm up early because I'm getting half price Easter candy at our grocery store before they sell out. That's the way to do it. And Liz shares this photo. I'm up way too early because I am pug sitting for my daughter. And this silly pug doesn't like sleeping in. I hear that. And thank you very much uh, to the person that sent me that old school 
cool 1983 photo of Cal Ripken. I love it. Let's go O's. All right, coming up next, a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And coming up on Morning Joe, dueling voices on Georgia's controversial new voting law. We'll hear from Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and Georgia State Rep Erica Thomas. Don't go anywhere. Morning Joe, just moments away. CIDP disrupts. CIDP derails. Let's be honest. CIDP sucks. But living with CIDP doesn't have to. When you sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com, you'll find inspiration and real patient stories, helpful tips, reliable information, and more. CIDP can be tough. But finding hope just got a little easier. Sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com. Be heard. Be hopeful. Be you.